welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with writers in the studios of North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wiegman. Local author and poet Joan Goodrow wrote a memoir, Strangers Together, How My Son's Autism Changed My Life. Her second book was Another Secret Shared in Other Poems. She sees the puzzle of autism from the perspective of both a parent and a professional. Joan Goodrow has been a special education teacher and program specialist. Her poems, articles, and stories have appeared in numerous anthologies, periodicals, and reviews in North America. Her plays have been produced in Chico's Blue Room Theater. Her latest book is a collection of poems, Where To Next? It looks at the personal effects of California wildfires, the corona pandemic, and life on the autism spectrum. Mass, evacuate again, my autistic son and me. Not the Paradise Fire this time, but the Oroville Bear Fire. Corona follows wherever we go. I see you through a mask of smoke, the outlines of your life blurred hazy. Remember you so small, a dark mystery I could not solve. I see you in a mask of cloth, can't see you grin or hear your whispered words. Remember you so small before you had sounds or smiles. You're grown now and we carry on our way, but still hide smiles and muffled words behind our masks. Wander through smoke, wonder where to next. This is local author and poet, Joan Goodrow. Reading from her latest collection, a book called Where To Next, which is the way she ends this poem. Wander through smoke, wonder where to next. Joan, uh, how did you come to write this poem you call Masks? Well, again, it, uh, we've had a kind of a long, difficult year. And starting last spring, I decided to, to try to write about the feelings that I was having. Um, and of course, being isolated from my son was very difficult. And on top of the pandemic, we also had uh, more fires. And my son lives in a supported living home. He lived in paradise for quite a few years. But in the past few years, he has moved four times because of, of fires and, and other emergencies. So I thought this is the time to kind of record feelings as, as we're going through this troubled time. Well, you, uh, the fires play a large role in your writing because of the effect that this fire has, it's, it was challenging enough for families where all the members of the family could function more or less normally. But you have a son who is on the autism spectrum. So I'd like you to read a poem that you wrote called Diagnosis, if you would, referring to your son's diagnosis. Yes. Um I included this book from my previous book because I thought it was good, even though my son is an adult now, I thought it was kind of good to see how it was in the beginning. Diagnosis. I know by the time I take Ian's three-year-old birthday picture in his sailor suit. Last year, his gurgles and babbles dropped into silence broken by howls through the night. In that long year of wondering, I peek in his sister's baby book to check when she talked, to tell myself he's okay. Two strong magnets, my gaze and hugs don't attract him, but repel. 
I watch him so small disappear into the MRI tube for brain tests that tell nothing. He pushes away the test puzzles and pictures and grabs a bright baby rattle, shakes it, laughs. He pushes away the test puzzles and pictures and I know finally what he wants for his birthday because he's not really three years old, but like the doctor says, delayed. Like a train, can he catch up, I ask? No, not like a train, says a specialist. But the engine inside my head blocks out the rest of his reply. I picture a train with Ian and me pulling out of the station to an unknown destination with nothing but the clothes on our backs. I don't know when we'll arrive, only the time of departure, and we will never return to where we are now. This is a poem written by Joan Goodrow. She's my guest today, and she had previous publications. Now, Joan, you were saying that this poem was previously published, but you wanted to bring it back kind of to explain what your son was like as a three-year-old. But you mentioned uh, going to this unknown destination with nothing but the clothes on our backs. And is it my understanding that you wrote this poem before the campfire? Oh, yes. Yes. And as I'm reading it, I'm noticing that the final line, we will never return to where we are now, kind of echoes the where to next line. But um, yes, he was, uh, let's see, I wrote this about 10 years ago. Well, let's skip ahead then to the campfire, because you have a couple of poems. For example, you mentioned the group home evacuations, and you follow that in your book with your son evacuates. So would you read group home evacuations, please? Group Home Evacuations, Campfire 2018. Neon fire slashes between the black ridge and sky. From this gash of blood, men evacuate from 19 group homes, creep in Calvocations vans down Skyway Road. Where are we going? Sam yells over and over. Jose sways back and forth and bangs his head. Bob takes off his seatbelt and socks the driver. Through flames and smoke, dark as midnight, they find shelter at last in tents and old RVs near Woodson Bridge beside the cold Sacramento River. Where's my bed? Sam says over and over. Jose paces back and forth. Go home, moans Bob. The men all huddle in gray haze and cinders. Eyes water, smoke chokes. Sam stands by the river. Tomorrow, when I go home, I'll go to my recycling job, go to my cove center and hang with friends, go to Jackie's Hilltop Cafe for the hamburger special. The Sacramento flows by, murmurs what no one understands. So this poem was Group Home Evacuations. And this was after the campfire in 2018. And your son, who's on the autistic spectrum, was also evacuated then. So would you read that poem, Joan? My son evacuates. My son evacuates. Ian rips off his smoke mask and swings back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Put your mask on, 
his sister commands him like she did when they were both little. We all wear them so alien air won't choke us and together trudge the crowded parking lot. Ian pushes a shopping cart along with other shuffling evacuees who plod with eyes straight ahead to pick whatever's left over. He swings from side to side in a bed not his, and just before he goes to sleep, sees the van that picks him up every, every, every day to walk the paths of Billy Park, collect for recycling, hang out with friends, read in library books words he cannot speak. Instead, he wakes to an inferno, charred eclipse of the sun. But if he repeats, repeats, repeats his swaying long enough, maybe his world will reappear, rise through ponderosa pines, just like before. So this poem, written by Joan Goodrow, is one describing the evacuation of her, her autistic son, adult autistic son, from the campfire. So, Joan, anything else you want to say about that subject? Because now I'd like to move on to one that uh, you wrote with a little bit of humor about your age group. No? <laughs> senior, <laughs> senior online dating, Joan. And this poem is called Senior Online Dating. Bald was the color of my true love's hair. <laughs> yes, Anne Burnett seemed to like this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, before calling, he Googled my name to find lies I made up online. Our first date was to the Elks Club for flu vaccine, then to his yoga class for a two-for-one free trial. At coffee, he blamed his ex, who never worked because she was of that age so long ago, where her only job was to raise children who blamed her for no ambition. He scrubbed my patio with bleach to kill the moss, he said, would freeze in winter and cause my friends to slip and sue me. Advised exercise for my own good and bangs to frame my face. A knock at my door and I run to my bedroom closet like hide and seek when I was young. Another knock. Are you in there? Silent, I close my eyes and hold my breath. Afraid I will be found or worse, left alone in my hiding place. This is poet Joan Goodrow reading Senior Online Dating. Bald was the color of my true love's hair. And Joan, this raises the question, and if it's too indiscreet, you don't have to answer. But was, <laughs> was this poem based on personal experience? Well, yes. I don't think I could make it up. <laughs> and, uh, it comes from the section of heart murmurs. I divided my book into four sections. And um, in, in the heart murmurs section, I... A kind of deal with offbeat love. And now I'd like to change the mood to, to one that's um, rather heartbreaking. This is a poem you entitled to my friend Julie, who doesn't remember my name. Would you read that poem, Joan? To my friend Julie, who doesn't remember my name. She pets the stuffed dog that replaced her old chihuahua. And I talk about when we smashed old plates from the goodwill and yell the names of our exes. Take that and that. Then from the pieces made a mosaic mural in her garden gazebo. I ask, do you remember that good Friday in the park? How we missed the mass 
but I was dressed in black, set to grieve. So we sat on a park bench, past a bottle wrapped in a sack, entombed together, sharing sacrament. She laughs, but says, there's something dark with my brain and can't recall. Old nurse, she listens to the others at her assisted facility, strokes their arms, pats their hands, prays with them, but she's tired of their whines and gossip. I want to retire, but there's no one to replace me, and I can't remember where I live. You still live with me in the dark of your front porch where we dance barefoot with our sons and daughters, twirl sparklers, write our names in fire, names you can't remember. This is local poet and author Joan Goodrow, and she just read us her poem to my friend Julie, who doesn't remember my name. Joan, it's been a delight, I must say, uh, hearing you share your poems with us. And so I want to thank you for, um, for doing that, for writing these poems. And we'll look forward. I'm sure you have some more poems that you'll be publishing in the future. Thank you, Joan. I remind listeners that the name of Joan's latest collection of poetry is Where To Next. After a break, I'll ask medical journalist Michael Castleman what questions about sex are most common. Today's talk with Michael Castleman about his book, Sizzling Sex, contains frank descriptions of the physical and emotional issues around sex. While the interview is not graphic or obscene, it may not be suitable for all listeners. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. My next guest has written a book, Sizzling Sex, which contains frank descriptions of the physical and emotional issues around sex. While the interview is not graphic or obscene, it may not be suitable for all listeners. There's a lot we don't know about sex, and even much of what we think we know turns out to be myth. That's according to today's guest medical journalist Michael Castleman. During a career spanning almost 50 years, he has become the most popular sex writer on earth. From 1991 through 1995, Michael Castleman answered the sex questions for Playboy's advisor column, then American men's most widely read source of sex information. For the past five decades, Michael Castleman has written about sexuality for dozens of magazines and websites, including WebMD, Reader's Digest, Cosmopolitan, Psychology Today, Family Circle, and Men's Health. Some of his books have sold more than 600,000 copies in several languages. He previously wrote a book about building bone vitality. His newest book is Sizzling Sex for Life. Everything you need to know to maximize erotic pleasure at any age. Michael Castleman, welcome. Nancy, thank you so much for having me on. Well, you have answered so many questions about sex. Uh, in fact, uh, the estimate is more than 12,000 
questions on sex. And I can understand a young person's interest in sex, but where did you get interested in writing about sex? Uh, well, it actually happened accidentally. Um, in 1974, I was writing health articles for a community newspaper in Michigan, and Valentine's Day was coming up, and the uh, editor of the paper said, Mike, we want to have a cover story uh, called How to Make Love, and you're the best writer we've got to do it, so I want you to do it. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm 23 years old. What do I know? Um, you live with a woman. I, I was living with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And when I mentioned it to her, she said, well, why not do it? I mean, Mike, you might learn something. <laughs> so um, that led to uh, my first article on sex in uh, for Valentine's Day, 1974. And you can provide answers that we can solve ourselves for ourselves. Would you say well, that? Yes, I hope so. Uh, there's actually been good research on this, that um, if you take people, if you take about 100 people who have sexual issues or concerns, uh, and you give them self-help resources, like my book, about two-thirds of them will report significant benefit. Um, the one-third who don't get benefit from uh, self-help resources like my book can go to sex therapists and two-thirds of them will significantly benefit, which leaves about 10% of people who have sexual concerns and issues that are um, hard to treat. And that's usually the result of uh, some physical illness, you know, heart disease or something like that, diabetes. But um, self-help resources help about two-thirds of people who use them. And, and you know, I'm not going to claim that my book is going to help everyone all the time. It, it's not. But um, about two-thirds of people should get some benefit uh, from self-help resources, my book, or other similar uh, uh, resources. Well, when you're answering questions, and you field questions for decades, you have done that. There, I'm sure there are recurrent questions that people ask. So um, I think it would be helpful to know what's the number one complaint among long-term couples? Uh, by far, it is desire difference. Um, when people fall in love, initially they have what's known as the hot and heavy period. They can't keep their hands off each other. They make a lot of time for sex. They have a lot of sex. But after six months to about 18 months or so, uh, that's about how long the hot and heavy period usually lasts. And then um, the feeling of sexual urgency generally declines. And unfortunately, it declines at different rates for most people. So if two people have the identical change in desired frequency, there's no problem. But typically one person uh, wants to have sex more than the other, and that leads to conflict and uh, sometimes very serious conflict that can actually poison relationships. You know, Michael, this brings to mind a scene in a Woody Allen movie where Woody Allen and Diane Keaton are both visiting their therapist. And each therapist says, well, how often do you have sex? And Woody Allen says, practically never, twice a week. And Diane Keaton says, constantly, twice a week. Exactly. That, that <laughs> scene in, uh, in, the, in, um, in, in Annie Hall is, um, it's funny. And, and I mean, when in the theater, when I saw it, the, the theater erupted in laughter because so many people recognize uh, recognize this conundrum, this dilemma in their own lives. And the good news about desire difference is that sex therapists have developed a fairly remarkably simple program to address it. And I have a whole chapter in my book uh, called How Sex Therapists Recommend Overcoming Desire Differences. And I lay out a self-help version of the sex therapy program. And um, it doesn't help everybody, and some people might actually need to go to sex therapists, but I think that it frames the issue 
in a good way. And, um, and I've gotten feedback from people saying that I, I've written about this for years uh, before I included it in my book. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from people saying, you know, thank you, uh, that, that helped our, our, uh, our desire difference. And we've, we're, we're happier now. Well, you know, something that I, in reading your book, think is not helpful is Freud's advice. I mean, Freud is, he's up on this pedestal for years. And then you read what he had to say, as far as sex advice, you think, good grief, Freud, <laughs> were you ever wrong? What so, is true. Of- <laughs> so true. He, he, uh, uh, so much of what he said was just ridiculous and and made up. I mean, he did no studies, he did no experimentation, he did no observation of people uh, making love. Uh, he just made it up. And some of what he made up has a lot of insight. For example, the concept of the subconscious and the unconscious, we owe to him. But his whole thing about vaginal orgasms and his thing about how uh, you know, penis envy among women. I mean, it is just ridiculous. And it's, um, in retrospect, um, it's hard from looking back from 2021, it is difficult to understand how influential he was in the, uh, in the 20th century. I mean, he's, he's like, uh, he's nowhere now. Yeah. And that contrasts so starkly with the way you present your information in your book. I'm just so impressed how many, it seems like it would take a lifetime just to do the research that you did, Michael. I mean, your book is so thoroughly researched. You don't just talk off the top of your head and saying, well, I think such and such. You cite research studies, some of them more valid than others, and you give us information that is based on research. So thank you. Thank you. you. Yes. My my book is entirely evidence-based. I mean, I have a lot of experience in in doing some counseling too. So that that plays a role and that's stirred into the mix. But all of the um, assertions that I make are evidence-based. I I cite 2,500 studies throughout my book and it took a long time. It took three years of um, of uh, full time effort to uh, to write this book and to get all these studies uh, in a row. And I think it's important that people, you know, sex is so mythologized, and there's so many people who have so many, you know, wacky uh, ideas about it uh, that I thought it was very important in writing about sexuality to to cite the research literature because there's a great deal of it that never gets out of the laboratory. It's astonishing how little of uh, sex research really gets out to the public, and it, and it should. Um, but um, researchers, they just publish in these obscure journals, and nobody reads it except me. <laughs> and so uh, so I thought, well, God, if I'm reading them, I should write about it and, and – uh, um, and clue people in to what's happening in the world of sex research. My guest is Michael Castleman. He is a medical journalist whose most recent book is Sizzling Sex for Life, Everything You Need to Know to Maximize Erotic Pleasure at Any Age. Notice that in the subtitle, At Any Age, because it's kind of been the assumption maybe by younger people, that, well, once you get older, sex is in the past. It's not of interest to uh, people who are over, say, 60, just arbitrarily choosing that. And one expression that I didn't like, and I've felt this way for years, and you bring it out in your book, is to refer to older men as a, a guy, as a dirty old man. And I thought, no. Why call somebody who's interested in sex still? That sounds like a healthy old man to me. Yeah. (laughs) And so you devote some of your book to older sex. Yes. I have a whole chapter called uh, You're Never Too Old for Sizzling Sex. And uh, the the, uh, newspaper, what I find amusing is that uh, in the 1990s, I read a headline in a newspaper that said, for most people, sex ends at 70. And I thought, what? That's ridiculous. Um, and so I read deeper into the article. And these researchers 
uh, polled, surveyed a number of, of elderly Americans, and they asked them, are you still having sexual intercourse, vaginal intercourse? The large majority said no. And the researchers equated vaginal intercourse with sex and said older people don't have sex. Actually, what happens is that, you know, most older men develop erection problems, which makes uh, intercourse difficult or impossible, even with drugs. And many, many older women develop vaginal dryness and atrophy that makes intercourse uncomfortable or impossible. And so older couples who remain sexual generally jettison vaginal intercourse for what sex experts, sexologists call outer course, which is all the other ways to play that don't include intercourse. For example, hugging, kissing, cuddling, uh, mutual whole body massage, genital hand massage, oral sex, sex toys, and maybe some a little bit of uh, kinkiness, you know, blindfold, spanking, that kind of thing. There are many, many, many wonderful, satisfying ways to play with a lover that don't include intercourse. And uh, when older people let go of the idea that they have to keep having intercourse and they start having outer course, many of them find that sex becomes uh, a, a renewed pleasure in their lives. And uh, one of my missions with this book is to um, uh, reassure older people that their sex lives don't have to end. Uh, and many, many surveys show that uh, most older people uh, continue to have sex either with themselves or partners. And if they have partners, they want to make love with their partners by and large. Well, you know, that in reading your book too, that brought up the question of the definition of sex because we think we know. But when you ask people this question, they may have a different idea of this definition of sex. And I remembered back when um, Monica Lewinsky was told by President Clinton that, uh, well, this doesn't count as sex. Right. And we kind of laughed at that. But then and when I'm reading your book, I think, well, yeah, then how do we define sex? And you're saying that when they do these surveys, maybe everybody's not on the same page. That's exactly right. I mean, if you ask the typical American, what is partner sex? They will say vaginal intercourse. But if you look at what lovemaking really is about, lovemaking is mutual whole body massage that provides pleasure and eventually extends to the genitals. That's what it is. And uh, so really, lovemaking is more about massage than intercourse. And it's about playfulness. Playful whole body mutual massage uh, is really the essence of lovemaking. Uh, and eventually, if people are physically capable, that extends to the genitals where you can have special kind of pleasure. But um, even without genital sexuality, uh, mutual whole body massage and kissing and hugging can be marvelously, uh, can feel great. Um, and uh, so I ask in my book, I ask older people to take a new look at how they define sex and expand the concept beyond vaginal intercourse to mutual pleasure through mutual whole body massage. My guest is the most popular sex writer in the world, Michael Castleman. After a break, we'll continue our conversation about his new book, Sizzling Sex for Life. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with medical journalist Michael Castleman, whose book, Sizzling Sex, contains frank descriptions of the physical and emotional issues around sex. While the interview is not graphic or obscene, it may not be suitable for all listeners. My guest is medical journalist Michael Castleman. His newest book is Sizzling Sex for Life, Everything You Need to Know to Maximize Erotic Pleasure at Any Age. And notice you put that word pleasure in the subtitle of your book, Michael. And I think that uh, comes across in your book that it doesn't really matter how you define perhaps sex, but that you want to emphasize the positive aspect of sex. For example, um, when kids are growing up and they reach the age when you think, okay, I've got to, parents, got to bring up this subject, but uh, it's really, it's, it's dangerous. Uh, it's presented in a negative light. And I think that's, it seems to me, Michael, one of the reasons you wrote this book is to change that point of view. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I have a whole, one of the things about sizzling sex is that it's the first book to really explore all common sexual issues throughout the entire lifespan. Uh, One of the problems, you know, I've been writing about sex for almost 50 years, and one of the problems in the field is that it's very um, rifle shot. You know, there's there's books about uh, talking to your toddler about sex, talking to your teen about sex, sex for women, sex for men, sex if you're disabled, sex if you're old, so, you know, it's very atomized, and um, I wanted to write a single resource that would be sort of one-stop shopping that would be a concise and succinct discussion of all common sexual issues throughout the lifespan. So yes, I have a chapter on older sex for older people. I also have chapters on uh, enjoying sex um, when you are pregnant and nursing, talking to your toddler about sex, talking to your school-aged child and a discussion of uh, school sex education. Uh, and um, so every at every stop along the sexual uh, way through life, because there are sexual issues at every stage of life, I try to discuss all of them to uh, because they affect each other. I mean, what your parents do or don't tell you when you're five years old has implications for how you're going to be sexual when you're a teenager, when you're a young adult, when you are an adult in the prime of life, and when you're older. Uh, Sex is a lifelong uh, interest and subject, and no one had ever uh, considered uh, the uh, sexuality throughout the lifespan, Um, so I decided I uh, I would bell that cat. Well, since we're mentioning, um, young people and how sex is presented to them or not. I have two brothers and I've never asked them if our dad said anything to them about sex when they were growing up or when they reached teenage years. And I suspect he didn't say a word. It's very common. It's very common. Uh, I was very fortunate to have uh, sex positive parents who, who did talk about sexuality with my brothers and me. But I have lots of friends who, uh, you know, their parents never said one word about sex. And guess what? They haven't said much to their children. So um, it it becomes a cycle. You inherit um, the uh, predispositions that you that you uh, faced growing up. And and if your parents didn't discuss sex with you, chances are you're not going to say much to your kids, which is why one of the ways I am encouraging uh, marketing my book is I'm saying if you have trouble talking to your kids about sex, buy my book and hide it where your kids will find <laughs> it. And then just put a note in there saying, if you have any questions, ask me. Yeah, I thought that was a good tip, Michael, that um, just put your book out. We're not presenting it to your teenager, but uh, put it where they can see it. And sure enough, they'll pick it up and read it. So that's, I think, for parents who are too maybe shy is not the word, or just uh, reluctant to bring up the subject. Well, the, the other thing is, you don't, you know, people talk, uh, 
when parents conceive of trying to talk to their kids about sex, it's like known as the talk, yes. you know, like some major oration, like a state of the union address or something <laughs> where you like lay it all out in one enormous proclamation. And that's not, that's a non-productive way to, um, to conceive of it. Sexual subjects occur all the time in daily life. I mean, you, you open the newspaper, sex is there. You turn on the TV, sex is there. And so I encourage parents just to talk about sex as a regular, ordinary part of life, like they would talk about the weather or something. I mean, the weather is always out there and sex is always out there. And you don't have to be um, articulate, particularly. You don't, parents don't have to be uh, uh, sex experts. All they have to do is try and express their own values. Kids want to hear about their parents' sexual values. And when I was reading the research, there's a lot of research that shows that this is the case. And when I was reading that research, I actually had two kids at the time at home. And uh, and they didn't, as far as I was could tell, they didn't listen to a word I said about <laughs> sex or anything else. But in fact, kids are sponges. And when, uh, and when parents talk about their own values, kids listen. And there's a great deal of research to show that um, when parents talk about sex with their kids, even if they're not sex experts, if they just try, the kids postpone sexual experimentation into their later teens as opposed to their earlier teens. Most, If you ask most parents, the uh, uh, surveys show um, parents have been asked, when do you think it's appropriate for your kids to become sexual? And most parents say, oh, you know, 16, 17, late teens. And in fact, that is the uh, age. Uh, in, in the United States right now, uh, the average age of virginity loss is between 16 and 17. Now, some people lose their virginity, have, start having partner sex younger, and some people are, remain virgins much older, but the average is around 17. And... Um, so if parents want their kids to uh, postpone sexual initiation until their late teens, the best way to do it is to talk about sex with your kids, express your own values, uh, and, and let them know what you think, because they're, they're interested. You know, parents might think the opposite, Michael, that, oh, golly, if I bring up sex and I talk to sex about my teenager, they'll want to do it. Right. Yes, that's, that's a... Uh, a common uh, misconception. In fact, a lot of political conservatives oppose things like free distribution of condoms in high schools because they say, oh, it's going to give them the idea to have sex. Uh, excuse me. Uh, people don't need prompting to have the idea to have sex. I mean, it is all over the place. Kids turn on the TV. Kids go to the movies. Kids talk to each other. Um, the idea that... Uh, uh, that talking about sex makes people want to have more sex is actually wrong. When you talk about sex, people think about it more and are more judicious about getting involved in it. Well, for example, uh, suppositions about sex education prove to be inaccurate, Michael, according to the research that we think, well, sex education, that well, what are some of the erroneous opinions about sex education in the schools? Well, there are basically two approaches to sex education in schools. There's the conservative approach, which is abstinence only. You only discuss, don't do it, and you don't mention anything else. And then the, um, the liberal uh, uh, approach is to discuss all contraception, all the, all the methods of birth control, and uh, all of the sexual infections and how to prevent them, mostly, uh, which, is, which means using condoms. Um, but the fact is, the, the irony of this whole thing is that um, the survey, the studies, and there have, been, uh, there have been about 15 studies of the effects of either abstinence only or um, all the methods, how they affect teenage people. And you know what? They have no impact at all. When schools teach abstinence only, uh, teen pregnancy rates actually go up. And when, teen, and when you teach kids about all the contraceptive methods, teen pregnancy rates basically stay the same. They don't go down. There's only one intervention 
that has been shown to um, make kids wait to have sex a little bit later in life. So we're talking have it at 17 instead of 14. And you know what that is? It's parents talking to kids about sex. In fact, in my book, I advocate that um, all sex education in schools should be uh, abandoned. It should be ended. We don't. We shouldn't have sex education in the schools. What we should have is night classes for parents about how to talk to your kids about sex, because that's the only thing that really works. Parents are the key. Parents are the key to uh, sex education of their children. Um, and as I said earlier, you don't have to be particularly articulate. You just have to say what you feel and, and keep saying it, because uh, that's the only thing that really works. Uh, when, when in, in my own case, uh, you know, I, I was a professional sex educator for 15 years before I had teenagers, and I had trouble talking to them about sex. I mean, it's a hard subject. It's difficult. Um, kids can hardly believe that their parents still have sex. Uh, but what I told my kids was um, that uh, their sexuality should be based on consent. They should uh, have, be consenting freely and not feel coerced at all. Uh, they should uh, use lubrication and they should use condoms. And I uh, volunteered to buy condoms and lube for them as much as they wanted uh, whenever they felt ready to have sex. And uh, one of my children uh, took advantage of that and the other did not. So, but, um, but we didn't have any teen pregnancies in my family and, uh, um, and that's a good thing. My guest is medical journalist Michael Castleman, whose latest book is Sizzling Sex for Life, Everything You Need to Know to Maximize Erotic Pleasure at Any Age. So you have been in this field for a very long time, and your advice, I think, can be trusted based on your years of experience and also the tremendous amount of research I mentioned that you have done that uncovers uh, how sometimes we assume some things that we know about sex is really just myth. What are some of the myths that we have? We've brought up some of them uh, about sex. Well, one, one myth that's, that's critical is that uh, men are filled with lust all the time and women can take it or leave it. Um, the, the reality is much more complex than that. Uh, uh, sex is uniquely individual. Uh, there is only one universally valid sexual generalization, and that is that everyone is sexually unique. We are all different sexual creatures. Our sexuality is as unique as our fingerprints and DNA. And so you have to be very careful making any kind of generalizations about sex. Um, yes, for sure, plenty of men are ruled by lust, but when couples visit sex therapists for desire differences, about half the time, it's the woman who wants more sex and the man who wants less. Uh, there's a wonderful movie called Hope Springs with uh, Meryl Streep and Tommy Lee Jones playing an older couple, and he's retired from sex, and she wants to maintain a loving and sexual relationship. It, it, she's the woman who wants more sex. And they, um, and they go to a sex therapist, and they work it out, and there's a happy ending. Um, so you have to be really careful making generalizations about who wants what, because it's, it's very individual. Well, you even comment on a well-known book, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And you're saying, well, yeah, there are differences, but we have more in common than you might think. What would you say then? Yeah, I think you're getting at it. What we have in common that sure there are differences, men and women, but we also have uh, characteristics in common. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of research to show that, um, that, that men and women really want the same things in, in lovers. They, they want a sense of humor. They want understanding. They want someone they can talk to. Uh, they want shared values. And sexually, they want to feel like they uh, can communicate with one another. They can talk to each other. And I have a whole chapter in Sizzling Sex for Life 
called Sexual Coaching Made Easy. Um, you know, everyone has their own sexual peculiarities. And when you get to know someone, it's you assume that, oh, you're going to learn what foods they don't like, what, what movies they like, what, what, what colors they prefer, where they like to go for vacation. Everyone has their own little quirks and peculiarities, and that's true sexually, too. And there's only one way to make sure that um, your partner knows what you want, and there's only one way for you to learn what your partner wants, and that is to ask and get coaching. Ask for coaching. Coaching, sexual coaching is extremely important, and it's not that difficult. My chapter details how best to coach a lover and what you want, but the most important part of it is to ask, is this okay? At every sexual escalation, at every time you do something different, you just say, hey, is this okay? Uh, and tell your lover, look, I, I, this is about our pleasure. I want you to have pleasure. I don't want to do anything that you don't like. So if there's something that bothers you, please tell me. And unfortunately, the research shows that many women, about half of women, simply do not speak up and tell the guy what, that what's wrong. They go, the, these women go to their girlfriends and complain about the guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. He, you know, he's an idiot. But they don't tell the, the men. And so how else are men supposed to learn? So I encourage men to ask all the time, and I encourage women to speak up. And the more that, women, uh, more, the more that men and women, the more that couples discuss their lovemaking, um, the better it's going to be. So there's a good payoff. You know, I think sometimes women assume, well, he should know what I want. Uh, women often say, if he loves me, he'll know what I want. That's just not true. Sorry, ladies. Uh, you know, men are not, no one is psychic. No one can read your mind and no one can read your erotic mind. Um, he doesn't know what kind of shoes you like and he doesn't know what kind of moves you like in bed unless you tell him. Yeah, so it's incumbent upon me or the woman, the wife, to speak up. So that's one of the things you mentioned, uh, your chapter on... Um, how to ask for what you want. Any other things that we should um, consider as an ingredient in of sizzling sex? Well, one of the key things is novelty. And uh, most people who are in long-term relationships uh, understand that sex is better in hotels than it is at home. And the reason is that anything new anything new, uh, like a new location in a hotel, um, this uh, releases, triggers the release of a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which is the chemical of pleasure in the brain. And novelty releases dopamine, and in a sexual context, novelty makes sex hotter. And so uh, when people are courting, when people are dating and, and getting to know each other, they're always doing new things together. Uh, and as a result, in part of the, partly as a result, they have hot sex. Uh, but when people marry or couple up, um, often, you know, they fall into ruts, they get in the same old thing, and, and routines develop. And on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with the routines. I love my routines. But... Sexually speaking, you're going to have a lot more heat if things are new. And so that's why, you know, going away for weekends or making love in a different way or in a different place or at a different room of the house or at a different time, um, that heats things up. And novelty is uh, critical to uh, sizzling sex. And, and a lot of people don't appreciate it. I mean, they, they understand it. They know that sex is better in hotels, but they don't make the connection that novelty itself, anything different, is um, adds heat, heat, adds sexual heat. My guest is Michael Castleman, and he is a medical journalist and expert on sex, the world's most popular sex writer. His newest book is Sizzling Sex for Life. Everything you need to know to maximize erotic pleasure at any age. And this question I have for you now 
tends to happen more uh, in older men. And that is uh, preserving an erection. There are drugs on the market to help men uh, with erections. And Viagra is a well-known one. And another is Cialis. And you have a recommendation based on the research, Michael, a Viagra over Cialis. And which one did you find was a better solution? Uh, well, uh, there have been about a dozen studies of this, uh, asking people which brand of erection medication couples prefer. Overwhelmingly, uh, every study shows that people prefer Cialis over Viagra. And the reason is that Viagra has a duration of action. It lasts about four hours, uh, while Cialis lasts for 24 to 36 hours. And so um, uh, with Viagra, people feel, um, people feel some pressure to fit into the time window. And Cialis gives people a, a longer, a, a bigger time window. Uh, and so that is often preferable. But the other thing about uh, erection drugs is how few older couples actually use them. Uh, it's remarkable that um, uh, the, uh, when Viagra was released in 1998, the predictions were that this would be that every, every older man on earth would be popping the th stuff like candy. Um, in fact, rather few older men actually take erection medication. The, the estimates are about 10 to 20 percent. Um, and the reason is that most older people stop having intercourse. And so if you're not having intercourse, you don't need an erection, so why take the drugs? Um, also, the drugs have side effects that can interfere with sex. So uh, just having an erection, there's a lot more to, to sex at any age than just having an erection. But the fact is that most older men lose their erections, and this is one of the difficult passages of life that men have to uh, deal with. But the good news is that um, you don't need an erection to have an, an orgasm. Men can have earth, earthquake orgasms with no erection at all in an erotic context with a lover who they like and who is doing them the way they enjoy. And so... Um, older people, you know, if my attitude is if you want to use erection medication, fine, use it. And the one that will probably be happiest for you is Cialis. Uh, but um, understand that only a minority of older couples use these drugs uh, because uh, most people who are older um, just get away from intercourse and go with the hand jobs and oral sex and, and mutual whole body massage. And, and, um, and they find that to be quite sufficient. I might mention that uh, one reason, say Viagra, it's expensive. You have to have a doctor's prescription. You can get around the doctor's prescription if you were to get your erection drugs on the internet, but you say never do that. Oh God, that's a big mistake. I mean, uh, for one thing, um, erection medication should not be taken by some people. Uh, for example, if you uh, guys who have angina, who have that form of heart disease and take nitroglycerin medication, if you combine nitroglycerin medication with erection drugs, you can die. Uh, so you should never, erection drugs are prescription drugs for a reason. You have to talk to your doctor about whether or not you can use them. And um, I've seen the ads on the internet, oh, buy, you know, generic Viagra from Canada, it's cheap, it's easy, delivered right to your door, it's so discreet. Nonsense. Don't do that. For one thing, there have been studies looking at um, a bunch of researchers bought internet Viagra, and guess what? It had no Viagra in it. It was just, <laughs> it was, it was just fraud. So, um uh, internet, uh, internet Viagra is about as uh, valuable as uh, internet penis enlargement products. Just don't buy your sex products on the internet. If you have, if you want erection drugs, go see a doctor and get a prescription. I want to go back to something you mentioned to make sure people got that. You said it's possible to have an orgasm without an erection. And this is something that people probably don't know, that you say, you tell us different nerves control erection and orgasm. So you don't necessarily have to have 
one with the other. Right, right. You can have men can have super rock hard erections and not have any orgasms, and they can have completely flaccid penises and have wonderful erections. It's different nerves control the two functions, and usually they're coordinated, but they don't have to be. And uh, for older men, um, you know, most older men develop uh, erectile dysfunction, um, and as a result. A lot of guys think, well, I can't get it up anymore, so sex is over for me. Absolutely not. Um, even uh, fondling a flaccid penis can be very pleasurable for the man. And if a woman does her man right with her hand or her mouth, um, he can have wonderful orgasms uh, into very late life. And um, And I certainly, you know, it's up to every couple to decide uh, if they want to continue having sex w when they're uh, elderly. But um, I would encourage people to try uh, to do it because um, it brings couples closer together. And, uh, you know, most people really like it. Well, I think people would be interested in your suggestions for preserving erections using a healthy lifestyle because it's a win-win situation. You get healthier generally. And uh, specifically, you mentioned things that would help an erection, like people might not suspect taking vitamin D would help preserve an erection or flossing their teeth. Right, right. In my erection chapter, there are actually 22 risk factors for erection difficulty, which means there are 22 ways to help preserve your erection. Now, these 22 ways, they're not miracles. Um, Older men are going to lose their erections uh, usually. About 90% of, of men over about 65 have significant erection issues. Um, but the, the issue here is that if you live an unhealthy lifestyle, you can start losing your erection in your 40s. Whereas if you live a healthy lifestyle, you can preserve your erection for another 10 or 15 years. And so not only do you have more years of life, you have more years of happy sexual life if you live a healthy lifestyle. And by that, I mean getting regular exercise, eating a plant-based diet, a low-fat diet, um, uh, doing uh, stress management so that you don't have a lot of anxiety. Um, and like I said, in my chapter on erections, there are 22 ways to do this, including, as Nancy said, um, uh, flossing your teeth. If you don't floss your teeth, you have chronic inflammation of the gums, and chronic inflammation of the gums has implications for blood circulation around the body, including into the penis. So um, there are surprising ways that uh, things you, have, you think have nothing to do with sexual function actually do. Well, for example, you suggest not imbibing more than a couple of alcoholic drinks a day and not to drink shortly before sex. And often people make love drunk. You said that's not a good idea. But another thing is that so people might know that, but they might not know the effect of tobacco on sex. Oh, yeah. Tobacco is a sex killer. Um, for one thing, it, it makes people taste bad. I mean, you know, there's a, um, there used to be a, an anti-smoking uh, billboard that said, kissing a smoker is like licking an ashtray. Uh, and that's really true. So people uh, are, are often offended um, when they're making love with smokers. But the other thing is that smoking causes artery disease. You know, smoking causes heart disease. Smoking is a huge cause of heart disease and heart attack, and the reason is that smoking accelerates the uh, buildup of plaque deposits in the arteries that narrow the arteries. Well, erection is entirely based on blood flow into the penis, getting extra blood in there because erection is a hydraulic process that's caused by extra blood flowing into the organ. Well, if your arteries are clogged and narrowed, you don't get that extra blood. And so there's very clear evidence that uh, men who smoke um, are, are at uh, unusually high risk of erection trouble. And you may remember the uh, old uh, you know, Marlboro ads, Marlboro cigarette ads that, that uh, equated 
um, smoking with uh, cowboy virility. Actually, um, if you smoke, you're not going to get it up. Well, these days uh, we're confronted with ways of reducing stress. For example, meditation has gained popularity. And you, um, you recommend that people practice stress management. And fortunately, satisfying sex reduces stress. Oh, yeah, yeah. The author is Michael Castleman, and his book is Sizzling Sex for Life, Everything You Need to Know to Maximize Erotic Pleasure at Any Age. And I want listeners to know that uh, we barely scratched the surface. There is so much more in your book that I think people will be able, will be interested in and be able to use. Thank you so much, Michael. Well, thanks for having me on. And if people want to get more about the book, they can go to sizzlingsexforlife.com. Thank you, Michael. I'd also like to thank my first guest, Chico poet Joan Goodrow, who has a new collection of poems, Where To Next. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.